You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Thank you, team, for leading us in that. We are in week five of a seven-week series entitled Back to the Book, a series about the Bible. Uh, This series is rooted in the conviction that every big step forward that we take spiritually starts by turning back to the book. The next step we need to take forward spiritually starts by turning back to the book. So for the last couple weeks, we've been looking at 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's God's word, and therefore it's profitable. And then it tells us four things, for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Now, we've already looked at the first two of those, uh, that it's profitable for teaching, which is concerned with uh, right belief, and reproof, which is concerned with correcting wrong belief. Now, this morning, as we look at correction and next week at training in righteousness, we see how God's word confronts wrong behavior and next week how it encourages us in the right kind of behavior. This morning, we'll think about this third one, how God's word is profitable to us for correction. You love correction, don't you? Profitable, valuable. I'm sure I'm wrong. Set me on the right path. Now, it's actually valuable. It's important. This morning, I want to think about that together as we think about the fact that the book has eyes. The book has eyes. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. We read most of Hebrews 3 in the first part of chapter 4. I want to especially focus this morning on three verses. 4. Hebrews 4 and verse 11. This is God's word. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Father, I pray that you'd help us. Lord, it's to you that we must give an account. So, Father, I pray now as we look at your word that we might listen carefully, that we would listen humbly under your word, that we would listen responsively, eager to hear the truth of what it says, respond in faith and respond in obedience, that by your word and the power of your spirit, you might change us to become more like your son. Lord, the things we're looking at this morning are significant and serious. And, and I pray that we might come to your word with sober and eager hearts, eager to be confronted and changed 
by your word, for your glory and for our joy in you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the word of God, 2 Peter 3 says, is profitable for correction, for changing our sinful, bad behavior and setting us, turning us onto a new course, for moving us from, from disobedience to obedience. Don't, don't underestimate the significance or the value of that. If you've followed Christ for more than about five minutes, you know that it's hard to change. Change is never easy. It's never automatic. It's never painless. Growing in obedience and conformity to God is always hard. We need help. And and this passage here in Hebrews 4 helps us understand how it's God's word that does that. How it's God's word that helps us change, corrects us, moves us toward more obedient living. And it helps us see why this correction and this change is so important. It starts in verse 11 by talking about rest. Let us strive, let us do our best, let us work to enter that rest. You wouldn't think we need much encouragement in that, would you? For many of us, In our busy, tiring, hectic lives, rest sounds wonderful. If you're a mother of young children, rest sounds fantastic. We wouldn't think we need to be encouraged to find rest. But the Bible takes rest very seriously. In fact, in some ways we could say that that rest is the goal of, of everything God is doing in the world. This passage talks about rest on, on three different horizons. It starts off, look back in chapter 4, verse 4. It starts talking about God's rest. It says, For he that has spoken, somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So God creates the world, creates it good, perfect, without sin. It's wonderful. He puts the first man and woman in there, and then he, on the seventh day, rests. That's the the pinnacle of creation. Creation has been good. It's time to rest. Adam and Eve are supposed to live in that rest, enjoying God. It's interesting in those those seven days of creation, those six days come along and each day ends and it says, and it was evening and it was morning the first day. And then it was evening and morning, and he's dated. But when you get to the seventh day, there's, you don't see that formula. Because God's rest, that seventh day, is meant to continue on forever. God's people living in God's place under his good rule. But of course, we know that falls apart in Genesis 3. They reject God and his word, and they sin, and God's rest is, 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 is corrupted and it's broken. Now we must live in a sinful and fallen and painful world. But there's another horizon. There's God himself. And then secondly, we see God's people. We're supposed to enjoy rest. Look back at chapter 3, where we started reading earlier in our service. Verse 7. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and and then it's going to quote a bunch of verses from Psalm 95. So, So note how this psalm that's attributed to David in Psalm 95, here it says, well, the Holy Spirit says, David's words are, in fact, God's words. And it says this, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. What's he talking about? He's looking back 
hundreds of years before the psalm was written, well over a thousand years before the book of Hebrews was written that we're studying. To God's people coming out of Egypt, they see God's glorious salvation. They see God deliver them from slavery in Egypt by the plagues. Uh, he, they escape the army of Pharaoh through the Red Sea, the miracle of the parting of the sea. They're free now to move on to the land of promise, the land of rest. Right? It's like God's people now are going to go back to God's place and enjoy his rest under God's good rule. And what happens? They go just a couple days without food and, and they begin to grumble and complain. And they talk about stoning Moses and they start saying, we should go back to Egypt. And you remember in Exodus 17, God tells Moses, strike the rock and give them water. But God, is they call it Massa and Meribah, a day of quarreling and testing, because they tested the Lord and said, is God really even among us? Of course, later in Numbers 14, the, the big test, they, they come to Kaddish, they're about to enter in the land, and you recall, they send in 12 spies, and 10 come back, and, uh, or 2 come back, Caleb and, and um, Joshua, Caleb and Joshua come back and say, it's great, it's wonderful, it's a land overflowing in milk and honey, we got to go and we got to take it. And the other ten say, no, we can't. Uh, the giants in the land, they look huge, we look small, we, we, we can't do it. And they, the people grumble and complain and they want to kill Moses and they want to go back to Egypt. And God says, fine, you don't want to enter my rest. I, this generation, everybody 20 years and older, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. You won't enter my rest. You'll die in the desert and your children can go into my rest when the day comes. And so here in the psalm, hundreds of years after those events, David will say, don't. If you hear God's voice, if you hear his words, don't harden your hearts. Don't do what they did. Right? They did that. They put the Lord to the test. And he says, I was provoked with that generation. They always go astray in their hearts. And they didn't enter God's rest. The psalmist says, don't do that. But there's another horizon. There's God's rest. There's Israel's rest that they didn't achieve because of their, their rebellion in the wilderness. And then there's a third. Let's look back in chapter 4, verse 6. He says, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he points a certain day. Today, saying through David so long ago, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have spoken of another day later on. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So, so here's, what, here's what the writer's saying. God creates seventh day of rest. Sin ends it. God starts to work through his people Israel. He's going to bring them to the land and give them rest. Their rebellion kills it. David, years later, will say again, this is what Hebrews is pointing out, there's still a rest coming. There's still a rest coming coming. This rest that was lost back in creation when sin entered the world needs to be recovered. That's where the world, that's where God's work in creation is going. And so here in verse 11, the writer says to these Christians, he says, let us strive to enter that rest. The alternative is dying in the desert, dying apart from God, not with him, not in his place. We would strive to enter that rest. Why wouldn't we? He says, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, failing to obey God. Now, some of you are on your toes this morning, and you're thinking, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. We enter God's rest as salvation, not by our obedience, not by our works, 
but by our faith. Isn't that what the New Testament tells us constantly? And, and you'd be right, but, but disobedience and disbelief are very closely connected. Uh, right here in this passage, the verse we're reading right verse 11, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. But if we go back to chapter 3, verse 19, it says, we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So what is it? Do they not enter the land because they don't obey or because they don't believe? And the answer, of course, is yes. Because those two things are closely connected. Disobedience is the fruit, but disbelief is the root. We don't obey because we don't believe. If we believed God, if we really believed, we'd, we'd do what he says. And we don't obey because we think, well, that might not be right. That might not be best. Disobedience is the fruit. It's what we see. But, but the root is disbelief. Israel complains in the wilderness. They clamor to go back to Egypt. Why? You know, you, you, we read that story, and it's 2,500 years later, 3,500 years later, and we read that story and think, why in the world you, would you want to go back to Egypt? You, you, you were slaves there. You were miserable there. You were crying out in anguish to God. Why would you want to go back to Egypt? Because they didn't really believe God could bring him into the land. They didn't really believe he could bring him into his rest. They had lots of evidence. They'd seen the Red Sea parted. Don't you think if you saw the Red Sea parted, that would help your faith? I feel like it would. They saw God drop these plagues on Egypt and, and not on Israel. He'd separate and to show them that he was people. Don't you think if you saw those plagues, that would grow your faith? You'd think. But we have a remarkable capacity for unbelief. A remarkable capacity for unbelief. We need to believe, and it's that belief, that faith, that fuels obedience. So we've got to fight for faith and the obedience that it produces. So he says, don't, you've got to strive to enter that rest so that no one else falls by the same sort of disobedience. That faithless acting contrary to God and contrary to his word, not trusting him, so not obeying him and not following him. That's what Israel had done. And here he's saying, don't, don't do that. You've got to follow him. You've got to obey him. And obedience fueled by faith. Four, verse 12 starts... For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He says, look, you've got don't, don't, to watch out that you don't fall by disobedience. And he jumps immediately to the word of God. And he says that word sees way down into the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. The heart's key. That's what he's been saying for the last two chapters over and over. They hardened their hearts. Their hearts were hard. How? By what? Chapter 3, verse 13 tells us, says that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Our hearts get hard when we believe the lies of sin. Sin says things like, well, God doesn't know what you're doing. Or, God doesn't, God doesn't really care that much. Everybody does that. Or, God can't help you get what you want. Or, if you do it God's way, 
and you obey him, you'll be less happy. God isn't really for you. God's trying to steal your joy. Sin deceives. We, we could say it this way. Sin tries to make us find rest somewhere other than with God. Sin says the thing you're really looking for, the life, the future, the joy that you really crave, you won't find it with God. You'll have to look elsewhere. That's what sin is constantly trying to deceive us with. And what this tells us is that God's word helps us see those deceptions. It helps, it exposes what's really in our hearts. God's word exposes who we really are. Look again how it says it. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Now, now, where is that dividing line between your soul and spirit? It's immaterial, right? It's not, you don't have a... F- the point is, it's way up in there. It's way up into the real you, who you really are. It, it's the discerning the joints and the marrow. Right? God's word gets... What we see of people, and often of ourselves, is what's on the surface. And God's word goes in deep. It goes deep into who we really are. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This last winter, um, Adeline, our our six-year-old, had uh, a stomach flu, and she was sick for a day or two, and kind of complained about her stomach hurt, and uh, we felt it kind of like dragged on for a long time, and finally she woke up one morning, and, and she just just wouldn't stop crying. She said her side hurt so bad. She just wouldn't stop. And it hurts. And finally, I was like, we got to take her in. I mean, maybe there's something really wrong. And so we took her into the, uh, into the ER. And um, so they, uh, you know, all Addie knew is my side hurts. And I don't even remember which side it was. But anyway, my side hurts. And uh, that was her deep diagnostic evaluation. My side hurts, right? And we get there and we talk to the you know, initial consultation and the doctor comes in and he's like, well, uh, I might get my sides mixed up, but he said, you know, that side, the serious stuff is on this side. So whatever it is, we need to figure it out. But the really, you know, the appendix and other stuff is on the opposite side. So he, he provided that level of, but we, we'll have an ultrasound. So they did an ultrasound to kind of look and see, and they found something was kind of enlarged, but it doesn't tell us enough. Maybe it's a kidney stone, and now we need a CAT scan, right? Because then we'll really find out. And we're getting further and further up the diagnostic level, right? Because the CAT scan sees just about everything. God's Word works kind of like that. We're, we're like Addie, holding our side going, something doesn't feel right. I want things to be different. This hurts. I like this. I don't like that. I, and, and God's word comes in like a CAT scan, and it sees deep inside. It sees what we can't see, what's going on in our hearts. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Now, listen, God... It doesn't do that for God. He already knows what's in our hearts. He sees it clearly. God's word does that for us. Because we 
don't see our hearts clearly. We don't see them well. Ironically, it's often we ourselves who struggle to understand what's really going on in our hearts. That shouldn't be that big of a surprise. Because we do that with other people all the time. Well, she said this and she's doing that, but deep down I know what she means is. Right? And we're, we're kind of making those kind of evaluations with people all the time. Uh, for better or for worse. Right? So we have... Um, of course, I have six kids at our house, and I've had conversations with uh, one of them here, so a different one than this one. Uh, I've had conversations with about things, you know, going on when the attitude isn't good or the behavior isn't right, and we sit down. And um, you know, when I'm at my uh, when I'm at a low level of parenting, uh, the natural level of parenting, all I want to do is fix the behavior, right? You got to stop doing that because that's annoying, frustrating, embarrassing, all sorts of things. You have to stop. But in my better parenting moments, few and far between they may be, uh, in my better parenting moments, I'm, I'm concerned about the behavior, but I'm more concerned with why. And, if I can, to help her see why. Because there's conflict, say. Um, say there's conflict and there's struggle, right? And, and when I talk to her about the conflict, she explains it as, well, the reason is because my sister did or my brother did, and the issue is always outside of me. But I can see, no, no, the, the issue's not outside of you. That, that provoked it. The issue is in your heart. And, and so my job then is to try to help her see what's motivating. Why are you so angry? Why is your heart so hard right now? Why don't you even want to hug your dad right now? Right? Something's going on. And so I'm trying to see into her heart as imperfectly as I can. I'm trying to see into her heart what's going on and help her see it. Well, well God's word is doing that. As we engage with God's word, what God means for it to do is help us see into our hearts. Now, now another person might be able to help you do that somewhat. But, but God's word does it authoritatively, wisely, truthfully. God's word sees into our hearts. We need help with our own hearts, and God's word shows it to us. God's word confronts us. It exposes our unbelief. It makes stark demands on us. You remember... After that generation of Israelites died in the wilderness and God let their children who had grown up enter into the promised land, they, they conquered the territory, or much of it at least, and they had this big gathering, all the people, and to renew their commitment to God. And Joshua, uh, the leader of Israel after Moses had died, lays out starkly before the people, hey, look, you, you've got to choose. Are you going to follow the Lord? Or are you going to follow the false pagan idols of these people? Choose today whom you're going to serve. Right? You know that verse, Joshua 24. And Joshua says, for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. But the choice is just laid out starkly. You have to decide. Who are you going to follow? Who are you going to obey? And, and God in his word puts before us what he wants from us and what he expects of us and what he has for us. And, and the choice is before us. Are you, are you going to follow? Or are you going to obey? Are you going to believe him? that what he says is good and right and best for us, or are you going to disbelieve him and go the other way? I give you, give you lots of examples. I'll give you just one example. Jesus says, 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. What a blessing that is. Every time we're tempted to sin, what kind of sin, unbelief, lust in our heart, do we believe, no, this will make me happy, or do I believe, if, if I'm pure in heart, I'll see God. And the choice is in front of me all the time, and in front of you as well. God's word exposes for us what's really in our heart. God knows. That's what he goes on to say in verse 13. He says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Is that good news? Everything is known to him. You don't know everything about me. I don't know everything about you. There are things about us, things about our past, things deep in our heart, things we struggle with that we, we don't want other people to know. I want you to see the, the best part of me. God sees every part. Every motivation, every action, every thought. And we must give an account. Someday we'll answer for those. Is there any hope? We have to obey. We have to follow him faithfully. We don't want to fall by the same sort of disobedience and miss out on his rest. And yet we can't hide anything. All the evidence is going to be there. All the evidence will be brought forward before God by our accuser. All the reasons that we have failed and fallen short should not be forgiven, should not be accepted. Everything is on the table. It's all going to be known. How are we going to follow and obey as we should? It seems impossible. It is impossible. But. Verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, now we didn't go back, read back this far in Hebrews, but if we went back to the end of chapter 2, in fact, look back there just a couple pages at the end of chapter 2. If you look back at the end of chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Therefore, see, chapter 1 and 2 of Hebrews are all about Jesus, how Jesus is better than angels, how he's better than Moses. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. He says, Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. He's saying, look, Jesus, you know, Israel in the Old Testament had a temple, and they had a high priest, and the priest was the one that represented God to the people and the people to God. The priest stands before God, a holy God, and sinful people. And the big message of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is now our priest. He's our high priest, and it's, he had to become like his brothers. He had to take on human flesh so that he would know what we already know, how hard, how impossible it is to live the kind of holy, obedient life that God calls us to. So we have, we have this representative before God, 
Jesus Christ. And when we come to God, we say, God, it's so hard. Our representative says, I know. I know exactly how hard it is. But it's difficult to obey. It's difficult to believe. And our, our faithful high priest says, I know. I know exactly how you feel. This great priest has passed through the heavens. In other words, he came down from heaven to earth. And then after his death and resurrection, back through the heavens to God and God himself. He says, since we have this great high priest, let us hold fast our confession. Let's hold on to Christ. Let's continue to trust and obey. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. This is back in chapter 4, verse 15. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus has come to live the life we were supposed to live. Is it hard? Yeah, he, it is hard. He knows exactly how hard it is, but he never fell. He never disobeyed. He never failed to believe. Back in chapter 2, it talks about the high priest who makes propitiation for sin. In other words, who offers the sacrifice so that God's wrath and judgment may be turned away. And if we were to read on through the rest of Hebrews, we would see that Jesus is a better high priest because he offers the sacrifice of himself a sinful or sinless perfect offering before God. He offers himself as a sacrifice. He knows what it's like. He suffers the way we should and deserve to suffer because of our sin. And then, of course, he rises again. He understands our weakness. So verse 16 tells us, Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How do we hold fast to our confidence? How do we hold on to God? How do we persevere when faith is difficult, when obedience is hard? He doesn't tell us, try harder. Do more. We do need to try harder. We do need to do more, but that's not the answer. We, we just don't have it in us. What we have in us is trust to Christ is God himself. And he says, draw near to him. He will help you. He will give you grace. The kind of spiritual change you want to see in your life, and I hope you want to see spiritual change in your life, the kind of growth you want to see in your life won't come if you just put your head down and plod harder, and try more, and just, you know, it won't come as a result of finding some kind of hack that will simplify things and make it easy and automatic. The kind of spiritual growth you want to see in your life, the kind of change you want to see, comes from drawing near to the throne of grace, looking to Jesus himself for help every moment of every day. He wants to help. He wants to give you this grace. He wants to correct our disobedient behavior and make us obedient. Not just because it's right, but because it is good for us. God's commands are always good, even if they're not easy. So we draw near to the throne of grace and find help. We deserve to fall away and perish, like that generation in the wilderness. But Jesus has already fallen away and suffered for us. 
we can be forgiven. We can be made right with God. We can get the help that we need if we put our faith in Christ and trust him, go to him again and again to the throne of grace. So as we finish this morning, what can we do with all this? How can God's word help us change? Let me suggest briefly here as we finish this morning one thing that we might do. Turn to Psalm chapter 1. Hopefully Psalm 1 seems familiar to you. It is our scripture memory passage for this month, Psalm 1. Familiar. The Psalms were ancient Israel's songbook, and, and this Psalm kind of stands as an introduction to it all, pointing us to God's Word. Look at Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. His biggest influence isn't the way of the wicked. He sits regularly under the influence of God's word. And the result, verse 3, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither, and all that he does, he prospers. That sounds a little bit like God's rest, doesn't it? Planted deeply by streams of water, prospering under God's good care and hand. How does it happen? He meditates on God's word. We talked a couple weeks ago about sitting under the authority of God's word and how to do that, we must read it. We must have it before us to sit under its authority. Last week, we talked about how God's word corrects our unbelief. We need to study it to know what it really says and not be led astray by error. This week, I want us to think about how we might meditate on God's word. God's word is sharper than a two-edged sword. It gets down into who we really are, but it doesn't do it like that. It doesn't do it in an instant. And we need to give it time. So let me suggest this to you. When, when reading God's book, slow down. Slow down. If you're like me, you may have a tendency to assign yourself large sections and feel like you've got to get through them because you want to read through your Bible in a year or, or whatever it may be, and that's fine. There's a place for reading in, in large quantity like that. But it's important there's a place to slow down. You may need to read less. We read God's Word, we want to slow down. We want to pray that the author of the book, through his spirit, might show us what it says, what it means, what it means for us. Have you ever been reading God's word? And you've got something going on in your life, and you'll go to your reading for the day, and it's just whatever was next in your schedule or your plan, and, and it's, just, it's just what you need to hear. Those are good days. Like, it's, it's like a grace in itself. God knew I needed this word today. We slow down, we pray, we think, we take time, we chew it over, we read it multiple times, we think about what it says and what it doesn't say, 
You think about how it says it, how it fits in its context. We want to think. Rather than reading, and Mark Hazen up at Sagan always says this, you know, rather than reading for, for 20 minutes and then closing it up and going on with your day, read for 10 and spend 10 minutes thinking about it, rereading it. And then finally, write. Finally, write. Um, maybe that's in a journal. Maybe that's for some of you in your Bible. When I'm working on a passage to preach, I, I print the text out and then I just write all over it. I don't like to write in my Bible because it just makes a mess. So I, so I print this out and I just I write all over it. I highlight words that are the same with different colors so I can see repetition. I, I just write things that I think. Uh, if I just sit and think without writing, I have a tendency to forget. But if I write, I start to remember and I start to see things. God wants to change our behaviors, our very lives through his word. His word sees deeply into us in ways we cannot see ourselves. The things that need to change often are things we don't want to change. That's why we're doing it that way now. We like it that way. We're comfortable with it that way. And yet God means for his word to speak into our hearts, to see us, to show us where he wants to work and he wants to change us, which is always for our good. So as you go to read God's word this week, and I trust you will, let me encourage you to slow down. Read slowly, prayerfully, thoughtfully. Write as you read, even just a couple sentences and if you just take a piece of paper and say, this week as I read, I'm going to write five lines of something that I've learned or seen or been taught by this passage. We need God's help. Has eyes. Oh, may God help us to see. Father, I pray that you would use your word in our lives. Lord, there's a part of us that really wants that. There's a part of us that really wants to see the truth about ourselves, really wants to change, really wants to grow, and yet we know that we have yet a, a sinful flesh that will go kicking and screaming, that hangs on to its idols, hangs on to its sins. We, we want to grow and we want to change and we don't want to all at the same time. So, Father, we will need much help. I pray that we would draw near to the throne of grace, that we would make this an urgent matter of prayer, that we would... We would prioritize time in your word, slow, thoughtful, prayerful time in your word that we might see ourselves as we really are. As painful as it may be, Lord, we need that. And, and I pray that you'd give us eyes to see our own hearts through the truth of your word. Father, there may be some here this morning who, who've never really turned to you in repentance and faith. If there is this morning, Lord, I pray that this morning, right, right now, that they would humbly turn from their sin and put their trust in Jesus who died for them, took their punishment and rose again so that they might have, so that we might have eternal life and rest in you. Father, I pray that no person here would miss out on your rest, that no person here would fall away because of disbelief and disobedience. I pray every person here would go back relentlessly, tenaciously to your word, and that you would grant faith and repentance 
We thank you. Thank you for your love and concern and care and grace for us. We pray in Jesus' name.